Okay, welcome to day 121 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 19 verse 1 through chapter 21 verse 19, and then Psalm 54, and finally John chapter 2 verse 1 through 25. There might be some more background noises in this episode than usual. Um, as I'm sitting here, it is pouring rain and thundering outside. My dog is in my office and my um, my my AC unit is, is going in the background. So um, <laughs> if there's if there's a little bit of stuff in the background, then uh, that's what it is. But um, this is the place I have to record today. So all right, let's get into it. So in Joshua chapter 19, we see, uh, and really the all of our reading in Joshua today, we see the final distribution of the land among the tribes. Um, a couple things to note. Um, so in Simeon, uh, which is the first tribe that we read about today, um, it tells us uh, kind of twice um, that Simeon's inheritance was in the midst of Judah. Okay, you see that in verse 1, and then in verse 9, it says the inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah. And uh, if you look at a map of the tribal distributions of the land, you can see this. Um, any decent Bible probably has a few maps in the back. You can look it up there. You could look it up online if you want. But um, Simeon is interesting in that, yeah, it's surrounded on all sides by Judah. And um, the, the the reasoning given, at least here in Joshua, is... Uh, is is at least in part because of the size of the tribe, uh, the the tribal allotment for Judah. Um, this was probably also reflected in the, um, the the thing that happens in Genesis with Simeon and Levi. Remember, they're the ones who put the, the city of Shechem to the sword, and for that are um, not really cursed, but they're they they lose their place of prominence among the brothers, and they are said to be scattered tribes, and so Simeon kind of being part of Judah, I think, is is part of that as well. Uh, we also see uh, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, and Naphtali. Then we see Dan finally, and we have an interesting remark made here uh, in verse forty-seven, and that is uh, that. The territory of the people of Dan was lost to them. The people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem, and after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor. Now, this reflects the fact that Dan among the tribes is a little bit of a fish out of water. If you look at a map of the tribal distribution, Dan lies quite a bit to the south, um, south of Manasseh and west of Ephraim, but and that that is like you know almost uh, the, their southern territory is basically parallel with the uh, the Dead Sea um, on the, on the same the same parallel, um, but uh, they also end up occupying a town in the far north, and here uh, it's. It's owing to kind of what we've been seeing. Remember, I've talked about these cracks in the narrative of conquest, that the Israelites are unable to totally drive out the Canaanites. Here, the way it's said of Dan <clears throat> is that their territory was lost to them. David Howard, in his Joshua commentary, uh, paraphrases that as it, it slipped through their fingers. And <clears throat> they actually end up taking control. Um, and it's, it's hard to see exactly how these two are related, 
but they they Dan ends up taking control and kind of becoming more well known for this I think of a city in the north and here in Joshua that city is called Leshem in Judges 18 we get a bigger picture of that um, it is called Laish there though and which is totally normal I mean different pronunciations and ways of saying uh, personal names as well as toponyms place names is common um, you also get another kind of perspective of Dan's inability to totally subdue their land in Judges chapter 1, verse 34, where it says that the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So this idea that they, they dominate these the, uh, the, the, the lowlands and forcing Dan up into the hills. So Dan, as I said, a bit of a fish-out-of-water tribe. Um, and then finally, uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, gets, um, by the commandment of Yahweh, is himself given a city, just as Caleb, the one who courageously stuck up for God's plan to go into the land and to take it despite the intimidating uh, people who dwelled there, um, just as he received um, a city for himself, so Joshua receives the, the city of Timnat Serah which is in the hill country of Ephraim, Joshua being of the descent of Ephraim, and uh, Caleb being of the descent of Judah. Lastly, we see Levitical cities and um, uh, pasture lands surrounding them given uh, to them, uh, beginning with the cities of refuge, which you recall are all to be Levitical cities. So these are cities where somebody who does not kill someone on purpose, uh, the manslayer, is to flee and they're to go into the, the city uh, at the gates, encounter the elders, explain to them what's going on, and they're given refuge there. Um, here, uh, there's an interesting remark in terms of um, uh, in terms of how it syncs up with other things in the in the Pentateuch, most notably in Numbers. It says in verse six of chapter twenty, he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is the high priest at that time. Um, what appears to be going on here is that back in Numbers 35, 24 through 25, um, it's said that, the, that there's to be a judgment made by the congregation as to whether or not this person is actually guilty of, um, of murder or manslaughter, i.e. whether or not he belongs in a Levitical city of refuge. Okay, so um, in Numbers 34, uh, 3525 it says then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood what appears to be happening here is that um, Joshua is placing um, the two conditions for the manslayer living in the city of refuge side by side both with the word until okay so until he has stood before the congregation for judgment so what does that look like well apparently I think this is the way you piece these together you arrive at the city of refuge, you're allowed in initially by the judgment of the elders of that city, but the ones who really know what happened are going to be the people in the person's homeland. So at some time, preferably sometime soon after, they're to go back, um, allegedly with, uh, presumably with protection from the city of refuge, from the people in the city of refuge, and they're, they are to hear the case in the person's hometown, and then they are allowed to dwell in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. So I think that's how to put these things together here. Um, and then finally, in chapter 21 up through verse, what was it? Um, 
19, we see the distribution of some of the Levitical cities, uh, which, of course, will carry up through the end of chapter 21, which is, uh, which is in tomorrow's reading. Okay, let's go ahead now and skip forward to, chapter, uh, uh, to Psalm 54. Uh, psalm 54 is another psalm of David, and it's another one of these psalms, like we've seen a couple times, uh, like Psalm 51, Psalm 52, where the superscript, these words that are given at the beginning of the psalm, really place it in a, the context of something that happened in David's life. Um, interestingly, a lot of these are known from the books of Samuel. I say interestingly because a lot of other stuff would have happened in David's life than are the things that are mentioned in Samuel, uh, but there is definitely interesting um, connections between the biblical books going on here. And this one is uh, perhaps a little bit of an obscure reference, but this is um, actually from Sam, 1 Samuel 23. You read about this in verses 19 through 24. Um, this is identified as when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? This is part of this broader narrative of David being um, anointed to be a king by the Lord, having slain Goliath, and the people really start to love him, but Saul is still the rightful king. And David refuses to lift up his hand against him, but Saul really doesn't like David because he sees him as a threat to his dynasty, to um, to his kingship, and so he pursues David with the intent of killing him. And so a lot of this section of 1 Samuel tells about how David uh, fled throughout the, the, the land with Saul in pursuit, even had a couple opportunities to kill him, which he didn't take. We'll go into those, of course, in more detail when we're reading the book of 1 Samuel. Um, but that's the context here. Uh, basically what happens is that David is at one city, and he's uh, the city of Kalah, and he's not able to stay there because uh, the, the priest comes and he brings the ephod, which of course contains the Orem and, and Thummim, and basically wants to inquire of the Lord, am I safe here? Uh, to which God replies, no, you're not. Um, the, I, the actual thing is he says, will, will, will the Kalites give me up to Saul? And, um, and the, the positive response is received, Orem and Thummim, you know, it's probably like a yes or no kind of thing. And so you're not safe here. You got to go. And so he goes and he's fleeing through through uh, the region of Ziph, uh, the city of Ziph. And um, the Ziphites are happy to kind of snitch on him to send word to Saul to try to get in good graces with the king. Of course, it's not hard to see what they're doing, and they report to them to, to Saul that that David is hiding around their vicinity. So Saul, of course, comes after him there. And so this psalm is is about them, and this is a um, this is um, a psalm for vindication in the eyes of his enemies, people who are not going to uh, support him or protect him from this king who's clearly bloodthirsty. And so, uh, O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O oh God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, right? He doesn't really know them. Um, uh, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Um, there, he could probably be talking about Ziphites, could also be talking about people who are um, supporting Saul and, and accompanying Saul on this, this attempt to kill David, even though they don't even know him. Uh, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. 
put an end to them. Okay, so you have this imprecation here um, against his enemies. Uh, With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. Again, sacrifices are legitimate order. are legitimate offerings of praise to God. They just have to be offered in a right, with a right heart, in in the right, uh, with the right kind of life. I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So, ends with this word of hope. Okay, finally, let's go over to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is the account of the wedding of Cana. So uh, Jesus, um, on the third day, uh, again, this is, notice how I've mentioned how John is very specific about certain incidental details, which are kind of marks of eyewitness testimony, um, somebody who was there. But uh, on the third day, there's a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Uh, This is a, a town in Galilee, of course. And Jesus's mother is there as well. And they're celebrating and the wine runs out. And um, the and the mother of Jesus comes up to Jesus because she finds out about this verse and tells him they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, which I think is an interesting, you know, and I always imagine Mary saying that. I, I just, I love that. Do whatever he tells you. Um, now, I've noted how John seems to have a lot of double entendres in what he says. Um, there might even be a double entendre with this on the third day, that this is linking us to the significance of what is going to happen when Jesus rises, that we're try- we're start to, we should start to see kind of like the metaphors and or symbolism of this historical event in light of the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. I'm not crazy sold on that just because, you know— um, like, because a lot of the, these double entendres in John, it's like we know that John uses them, and so we're looking for them. But at the same time, we assign a relative probability to them. So also, for example, right, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Easy to see a double entendre there. Do whatever he tells you. That's what I would tell somebody about Jesus, right? Um, and it's def- so I, I assign that a possibility. Um what seems a little bit more clear is what the significance of this sign is. Um, a lot of people kind of get caught up on, because obviously this plays into the question of alcohol and Christians and things like that. And there are definitely a lot of passages that are relevant to that question. Is it okay for Christians to drink? Um, and if so, under what kind of circumstances? And is there anything that kind of limits that, that expression of, of freedom in Christ? Um, I definitely think there are. And clearly here, Jesus is making wine at a wedding, okay? So just saying that it's it's all Christians ever, everywhere and for all any reason should be teetotalers, it's hard to see how that's compatible with this. I will also say, however, that wine in the first century is quite a bit weaker than most of the booze that you're going to buy today, um, even most beers and things like that, okay? So they don't have isolated yeast strains in perfect conditions for... Uh, getting certain, uh, you know, gravity in each, uh, gravity is a measurement of the amount of sugar. Uh, That's uh, where you can tell um, how much has fermented out and so how strong it is. They don't have those kinds of things um, to to, to be able to ferment and age wine. So 
drinks are not as strong, uh, nearly as strong back then. But at any rate, uh, what's interesting is that this, uh, this symbolism of Jesus turning water into wine, spoiler alert, that's what's going to happen, but you've read it anyway, and this, of course, is a pretty popular um, uh, story about Jesus, um, seems to be hearkening back to imagery from the prophets when they speak about the messianic age, this kind of, this, the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. Uh, it's described in different ways, and one of the metaphors that is used is of a great feast with abundant flowing wine, or, you know, because wine, flowing wine is a symbol that things are really good. You've got enough grapes, that they're, 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 they're gushing their blood, the, the blood of the grapes, right? And it's overflowing, and, and we all have enough. And that's part of the symbolism of the reign of the Messiah. So Isaiah 25, 6, for example, on this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So this is this is the good stuff, okay? Uh, I myself am a fan of uh, bone marrow. If you've never cooked it, you should. There's great recipes online. <laughs> Delicious, right? But here also, this abundant flowing wine and the good wine. Uh, Jeremiah 31.12. Jeremiah 31, I've noted before, is a key passage for telling the new covenant that is in Christ. Uh, verse 12 here, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of Yahweh, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Notice this, this prosperity, this abundance, this, this goodness that, that will characterize the age of the Messiah. Um, and then finally, Joel 3, 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the steam beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of Yahweh, and water the valley of Shittim. Okay, so we see clearly that wine is part of the, the, the imagery that's used for the Messianic kingdom. Okay, so now the people here are out of wine. Okay, and so she comes, his mom comes to Jesus. Jesus' mother comes to him and, and asks him to do something about this. And then it tells us there were six stone water jars there. And John notes they're for the Jewish rites of purification. Right, so that's what makes people clean. This is, these are the water. If, if somebody becomes uh, defiled through contact with an unclean, some kind of uncleanness, we've read about this in Leviticus, right? One of the things they have to do is wash and wash their clothing, and then they're unclean until evening. It's that kind of thing. And so here is something that takes care of uncleanness. That is unfitness to worship, okay? And Jesus is going to do it with that water. Uh, and then... Maisie, be quiet. My dog's making sounds in the background. It'd be funny, actually, if the, if the mic doesn't pick any of that up. But anyway, he's going to do it to that wine, right? And then it, he, he says to the servants, fill the jars with water. They fill them up to the brim, and, they, and then he commands them to draw some out and to bring it to the master of the feast. And they take it, and he tastes it. And, he, and, and note here, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew... Okay, here's another thing in another one of these themes in the Gospel of John that a lot of times you get people who should be in the know who don't, whereas those who you think would not know do. OK, 
Okay, we are about to see this in the next chapter, right? Where a, Fer- a Pharisee named Nicodemus um, is just not getting it. Now, Nicodemus does become one of Jesus's disciples. Okay, but uh, he, in terms of his conversation with Jesus in chapter three, like he's having a real hard time grasping what Jesus is saying. Whereas in the next chapter, you have a Samaritan woman who's been married six times, and she gets it, and she goes and tells her whole village about Jesus, okay? Then later on, when Jesus uh, makes this blind man see, right, he's the one who sees, whereas the Pharisees um, and the other religious leaders are the ones who don't, okay? So you, you get this a lot in John. So here, the master of the feast doesn't know where the wine came from, but the servants know, and um, and so the... Uh, uh, and so he, he goes to the bridegroom and he's like, and he thinks, because he thinks it's the, the bridegroom groom is the one, the bridegroom is the one who is responsible. And he says, everyone serves the good wine first and one people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Okay. Now think about, you know, the wine of the old covenant and the wine of the new. Okay. Which one here is the good one? Okay. It's the opposite of what it would be at a wedding. The good one is what is served last. Here, we're about to—Jesus is here. We're about to have the good wine. Um, uh, I'm remember—I'm reminded of a song by the Cross Movement, which is a great Christian rap group. You should check it out. There's a line in it, Oh, you like to get drunk? Well, we serve genuine. Um, that's the idea here. And, um, and then John comments this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory— and his disciples believed in him. So this idea of signs, another very prominent theme in the Gospel of John. And the signs are significant in that they do not point merely to themselves. If all you get from this is, wow, that's amazing that he turned water into wine. What's your next trick, Jesus? Then you're missing it, right? Signs are supposed to point beyond themselves. The reason I, what I'm supposed to take away from a stop sign is that there's a dangerous intersection and I need to stop and proceed with caution. It isn't like, oh, look how nice red that sign is. No, the sign points to something beyond itself, just like Jesus's signs do. They're pointing to something beyond themselves. And uh, it's interesting to know, and we'll see this as we go along, that John's gospel is actually organized into what um, a lot of scholars call um, two books, the book of signs and the book of glory. And so there will be seven signs that Jesus does in his in in the book of signs, this being the first one. Okay? And then it tells us, John tells us, he went down to Capernaum. Again, another mark of eyewitness testimony that Capernaum is at a much lower elevation than Cana. So you go down to it, and that's how you would explain what it's like to walk from Cana to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Uh, then fast forward to the pa- to a Passover. Now, this is the first Passover that's recorded. Uh, the Gospel of John records three trips, three Passovers in Jerusalem, which is why um, most people will say that, that Jesus' ministry lasted three years, because assuming John is telling a roughly chronological thing and he's not conflating Passovers, he appears to go down to Jerusalem three times on, on three distinct Passovers. So then he's in the temple, and this is an episode that we've seen other t- uh, times in the Gospels, and all three of the others in the Synoptics. Um, and here is the familiar uh, thing that happens where he goes into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles, and sees people selling stuff and changing monies, 
and uh, and drives drives them out, or at least a significant number of them. He makes a whip of cords, we're told here by John, and uh, pours out the coins of the money changers and overturns their tables. And he tells those who sold the pigeons, uh, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then the disciples remember, we're told by John, that it is written, and here they they recall Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. And uh, go and read Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a psalm, is a psalm that is just about like it is, it is about how rough it can be to follow the Lord, and yet he. So like you have this godly man who is surrounded, but David, of course, right? Who's surrounded by evildoers, by people who hate him, who people who who don't who don't love the Lord. And um, and instead do wickedness and do wickedness to God's servant, all the while the servant of the Lord, the one who loves loves the Lord, the Messiah, David, okay, um, is um, is 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 zealous for God's house, okay, where like and you just but the, this statement is kind of like embedded in all of this um, kind of woe that this psalm has. It's like it's between I've become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons, and um, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became a reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. So that's what comes to mind here. Now, um, a question to ask, of course, is given that the synoptics place this event in the last week of Jesus's life after he enters Jerusalem, where he, he will be arrested, go to trial, and eventually be crucified, and here John is placing this at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, what's going on? And although it's possible that John has moved this and placed it here for thematic reasons. We've seen that Luke is okay with with doing stuff like that, and I'm not saying that John isn't. I don't know if it's necessary to say that. Um, In fact, one could make a a positive case, um, given how tightly tied together John's chronology seems to be. Um, There's even an argument based on the 46 years to build the temple that it actually places in a specific uh, year, um, I'm, uh, I forget the details of that. Uh, I'm not going to bore you with it. Um, Lydia McGrew has a section on that in her book, The Eye of the Beholder. Um, it's not necessary to see this as, a, as, as the same cleansing of the temple. In fact, a case can be made, uh, I think, fairly well that there were actually two cleansings of the temple, and I don't think that's a weird thing to say at all. Because, um, I mean, imagine the scenario, right? Jesus comes on this Passover, he does this, and this really becomes a strike one with the Jewish leaders who confront him. They say, what what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus gives them the answer, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, right? That stuff happens. But then they kind of like, they kind of like let him go um, so that the next time he comes down and does this again, they're way more angry at it because now this is the second time that he's done it. So, you know, I, I think a good case could be made for both of them. I'm inclined to say that there were two temple cleansings that Jesus did. I don't have any problem with that. Um, but I also understand that some people think uh, there's just one, and that's okay, too. Um, I don't see a huge problem with that, although some some do see a bigger problem. Um, 
but uh, yeah, so also a couple other things to note. Um, keep in mind that in the Synoptic Gospels, the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders, after they arrest Jesus, the high priest and his entourage, are looking for um, things, people to come and, and accuse Jesus. In fact, it says they're looking for false witnesses. And uh, some of the guys who come to them say, this imposter said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. None of the synoptics record Jesus saying that. John records it, and he records it here. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, again, recall what I said about the theme of Jesus saying stuff and people not getting it. Um, and it's kind of understandable that they wouldn't get this, right? Because it really does sound like he's talking about the, the building of the temple. And so their response is, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But then John makes the aside note, but he was speaking of the temple that is his body, the temple of his body. Um, John, um, of of all the synoptics, of, of all the Gospels, rather, John's not a synoptic, of all the Gospels, um, makes a... A bit the biggest deal about Jesus as the new dwelling place of God with man. Uh, we've already kind of seen that, right? He came and tabernacled among us. It told us in chapter 1. Um, uh, Jesus is going to say something very similar to this to the woman at the well, where he's like, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship, but rather in spirit and truth. And then there's uh, various things surrounding Jesus's death also, that really make it like Jesus himself is the temple, this place where worship takes place. He's the place where atonement happens. He's the place where cleansing happens. He's the place where true worship of God happens. Um, and um, and then John finishes the, this, this story with, When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Finally, we have this little note that uh, he's in Jerusalem at the Passover, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And remember from John chapter 1, it said that, you know, his own did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The receiving him, believing in his name, these look in some sense like they're genuine disciples, but Jesus is not like totally gung-ho about them because he knows what is in man, right? He did not entrust himself to them, it says, because he him, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus realizes that even among people whose uh, faith is, is convincing and strong, uh, they might not be as faithful as you might think. Um, and this is another thing that we see in John, which is a distinction between belief and belief. Um, belief that is fickle and belief that is strong. And I don't think enough is said here to really say that the people whom it's talking about here are, you know, they turn out to be unbelievers or something like that. But just, it's enough to say that there's some caution that, that not everybody here who, who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God and who uh, truly, know, truly know him. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you so much for being with me. And I look forward to, uh, to being with you again tomorrow. But until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.